Welcome to the Abarta audio guide to Loophead. This guide, produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Loophead Tourism, helps to tell the story of the Loophead Peninsula, a wonderful and unique landscape where a thin finger of land points deep into the roaring Atlantic Ocean. The Loophead Peninsula is located at the furthest extremity of County Clare, at the mouth of the majestic River Shannon. Its strategic location has long made it a desirable place to live, and its wealth of fascinating historical sites testify to its importance over millennia of Irish history. Loophead is not only important to humans, it is one of the most vibrant and varied natural habitats in Europe, with a myriad of rare plants and animals that can be seen along its coasts. The variety of environments, from beaches, cliffs, salt marshes, mudflats, estuarine environments and hedgerows, are home to a bewildering variety of flora and fauna. And Loophead is recognized as one of the best locations in the world to see a huge variety of resident and migratory seabirds. The peninsula's importance as an ecosystem was acknowledged by the official designation of several areas of Loophead as special areas of conservation to help to ensure their preservation into the future. Despite its relatively small size, Loophead has become famed over the centuries as one of the best places to holiday, an unspoiled paradise that retains its authentic charm and warm welcome, making it an ideal location to get away from it all. This beautiful landscape is soaked with stories of folklore, shipwrecks, superstitions and traditions. Our audio guide will introduce you to some of the characters from the area, who will tell you their own tales of life on the loop. When you're ready, we will begin our tour at Moyasta to hear how the railway transformed life for the people of Loop Head. The arrival of the railway at the end of the 19th century was revolutionary for life on Loop Head, as it allowed local agriculture to rapidly develop as markets became more accessible. Trains transported thousands of cattle, horses and pigs to markets in Clare and Limerick. Every year, 8,000 tonnes of hand-cut turf was transported along the railway to warm fires in Ennis and beyond. The railway also brought around 250,000 passengers each year, with the majority travelling in the summer months. Tourism began to flourish as people had easy access to the idyllic scenery of Loop Head. There were three daily trains between Ennis and Kilkee, though in the early years they were not always wholly reliable. A train carrying the famous entertainer Percy French and his troupe to a performance in Kilkee broke down, making him miss the start of the concert. When he found that most of his disappointed audience had already left, he took a case against the railway company and was awarded £10 compensation. He later wrote a popular song called Are You Right There, Michael? that derided the unpredictability of the railway, sung here by Gabriel Keating and friends. You may talk of Columbus' sailing across the Atlantic Sea, but he never tried to go railing from Ennis as far as Kilkee. You run for the train in the morning, the Escoshan train starting at eight. You're there when the clock gives the warning, and there for an hour you will wait. And while you're sitting in the train, you'll hear the guard sing this refrain. All together. Are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Do you think that we'll get on at all tonight? Well, it all depends on whether the old engine house together. And it might, The railway was the centre of a number of incidents during the troubled years of the War of Independence. Train drivers steadfastly refused to carry armed British soldiers on trains, while the notorious Black and Tans once opened fire on a train in retaliation for an IRA ambush at Renin. The West Clare Railway Museum at Moyasta 
tells the story of the importance of the railway to the people of Loop Head, where you can discover more about the vital role of the railway in transforming life on the loop. Quirin Pier. Quirin Pier is one of several piers that were constructed along the Shannon estuary in the early 19th century to aid the busy fishing fleets that operated along the western coast. Quirin was a thriving hub for the fishing industry, with 50 currucks and 30 larger boats all sailing from Quirin to fish the waters of the Atlantic. In the past, locals used to gather the abundant seaweed from the shore here to fertilise their fields. The mudflats and salt marshes that surround Quirin are an important environment for a myriad of rare plants, animals and wild birds. Here in Polisherry Bay, they're part of their, under the Habitats Directive, Nature 2000 Habitats Directive. They'd be um, SPAs, so Special Protected Areas, so they would be because of the bird population that's here, the you know the overwintering birds in particular. So like in the winter time now, and you'll see them now from now from autumn, you'll see the Brent geese coming back, and the ducks. Um, there's the curlews here year round. You get the whimbrels here as well, um, passing through at the start of the summer and the end of the summer. Green shanks, red shanks, dunlins, uh, turnstones, and the like. So that's that's why it's it's a protected area. Quirin is also um, under the salt marsh. It's a salt marsh as well. Mm. So, and you'll get that back at uh, Rhine Villa. There, there's a lagoon back there too. But the salt marsh, because it's you know the higher intertidal zone, and you get that that rye grass all the way along, and that's a habitat in itself. So it's kind of protected for that as well. Looking southeast from the pier, you can see Scattery Island on the horizon. This ancient monastery was founded by St. Senan in the 6th century. Legend tells us that when St. Senan first arrived on the island, he found it was inhabited by a monstrous sea serpent known as the Cahak that terrified anyone foolish enough to venture near its lair. However, Senan was not deterred. He confronted the beast and made the sign of the cross. The holy man drove the ferocious Cahak from the island and it fled to the bottom of Duluk Lake at the foot of Mount Callan. And some say it lurks there to this day. The visible remains of the monastery mainly date to the 11th and 12th centuries and include five churches, a graveyard, a holy well and a particularly fine example of a round tower that stands some 26 metres or 85 feet tall. By the late 16th century, the landing place of the island was defended by a small castle at the foot of the pier. In 1843, local seamen managed to board a deserted ship, the Windsor Castle, that was aimlessly drifting off the coast. They found the ship abandoned by its crew, but still carrying its valuable cargo of cotton, spices and other exotic trade goods from India. When they managed to safely bring the ship to shore, they were rewarded with £5,000 compensation, a vast sum at the time. They divided this windfall between the seamen. A local land agent approached the newly wealthy men and offered to sell them land on Scattery Island. The seamen agreed, and their descendants continued to live on Scattery Island until the late 1970s. Though these waters sometimes brought wealth, they occasionally brought tragedy. Camogue Pier to the northeast of Quirin was the scene of a tragic disaster during the famine. Starving families from the western fringes of Loop Head had travelled to the workhouse in Kilrush to seek relief. They made the voyage in boats across the narrow opening of Pulnishari Bay, but when they arrived, they found the workhouse full. The poor souls made their way back to the boats to cross the bay once again, though tragedy struck when their boat overturned. They were so weakened from hunger, they were unable to swim to safety. Forty-one people drowned within sight of the shore. A memorial was dedicated to their souls during the National Famine Commemoration 
in 2013. Karagaholt Castle. Karagaholt Village is located in a sheltered bay on the Shannon Estuary. It takes its name from the Irish Karagankavoltic, meaning Rock of the Fleet, an indication of its importance to seafarers. Samuel Lewis, who visited the area in 1837 whilst compiling his topographical dictionaries of Britain and Ireland, noted that six large boats known as hookers and 500 currucks were based here. These boats were a vital fishing fleet and also transported locally produced agricultural goods like grain, butter and pigs. The handsome ruins of Karakaholt Castle still stand proud on a headland in the estuary. The castle dates from the late 15th century and it was the seat of the McMahon family who were chieftains of Korkovashkin. Seven ships from the ill-fated Spanish Armada anchored here in the estuary in September 1588 as they attempted to regroup to sail home following the defeat by the English. The Spanish fleet had been battered by ferocious storms and the beleaguered survivors anchored in the estuary to carry out running repairs to enable them to get home. Some of the crew attempted to land, though they received little support from the locals as the English authorities had declared that they would execute anyone who offered aid to the Spanish. Six of the ships set sail again shortly after, though one, the Annunciada, was so badly damaged in the storms that it was beyond repair. To stop the Annunciada falling into English hands, the crew set her on fire before returning home on the other ships. The last McMahon chieftain to occupy Karakaholt was Tyg Kerk, or Tyg the Blind. He joined the rebellion against Queen Elizabeth I during the Nine Years' War, and with his experienced seafaring fighters, he managed to capture an English vessel in the Shannon Estuary in 1598. Making the most of this turbulent time, he launched a series of raids to capture livestock and loot the lands of those who sided with Queen Elizabeth, including an attack on Donal O'Brien, brother of the Earl of Tormund. In retaliation, the Earl laid siege to Carrickaholt, and executed many of McMahon's followers. For their role in the rebellion, the McMahons forfeited their lands, and Carrickaholt was given to their O'Brien enemies. Donald O'Brien inherited Carrickaholt, and he made a number of alterations to the castle. Evidence of this can be seen on a fireplace on the fifth floor that bears his initials and the date 1603. However, by the end of the century, the O'Briens found themselves on the wrong side of history when Daniel O'Brien, Viscount of Clare, supported King James at the Battle of the Boyne. After James's defeat to William of Orange, the O'Briens lost their lands. The land and Carrickahoe Castle were granted to the Burton family, who resided in the castle until the 19th century. Today, Carrickahoe is a popular place for fishing, water sports and dolphin watching. This protected area is an important environment that is home to over 200 bottlenose dolphins, as described by Jeff McGee. Where the river comes out, it comes out rich in um, nutrients that it's brought down from the boglands of Ireland. It meets the plankton coming in from the Atlantic and the North East Atlantic because of the cold water meeting warm water out in the Atlantic, it's full of plankton. We've got really plankton-rich water, so that's why our water is green rather than blue, because of plankton, microplankton that you can't see. Mm. You've got lots of little fish coming in for the plankton. The plankton's coming in for the fresh water, mixing in with the salt water. The little fish are eaten by the bigger fish. The bigger fish are eaten by the dolphins and the whales. We have 160 to 200 dolphins that live here all year round. Uh, we see them in groups that vary in size from 2 or 3 up to 10, 15 or even 20. As well as that, you've got ocean-going seabirds that range the whole Atlantic, Manxia waters down to South America, the gannets, two-metre wingspan. They follow dolphins around because the dolphins show them where the fish are. 
They range down to Africa, and all the seagull family, all the gull family are here. And they breed, they breed here also, a lot of those birds do. Kilcredon. Kilcredon is a small headland that lies to the south of Caracaholt on the shores of the estuary. It takes its name from St. Credon, a contemporary of St. Senan of Scattery Island. He is associated with the two churches on the headland. Now in ruins, these churches appear to date to the early medieval period. One was modified in the 12th century when a finely decorated Romanesque window was inserted into its wall. When the church fell out of use, it became a graveyard. It is the final resting place of Henry Stuart Burton, the last resident of nearby Caracahoe Castle, who is interred within a crypt here. A holy well lies on the shoreline near one of the churches. This well is said to have miraculous properties. It too is dedicated to St. Credon, and its waters are said to cure many ailments. Every high tide, the well is filled with salt water, but it refills with fresh water when the tide retreats. A cave close to the well was used as a place of prayer for people with relatives lost at sea. There's a holy well in Kildredon, um, and that's noted as being uh, the burial place of St. Credon. It's a really unusual holy well because it's actually sank into the stone in the bottom of the cliff, so it's tidal. So when the tide comes in and the tide goes out, after about a half an hour the tide goes out, the well is supposed to clear itself and, uh, and be drinkable again. And then as well, just really, really close to the well, which you have to go down um, a really treacherous kind of little path to get down to the well, um, is a cave. But the cave was supposed to be used years ago for if a family member went out fishing or, and hadn't returned, that the family members would sleep the night in the cave praying for the return of their loved ones. So it's, again, an unusual kind of practice. Nearby, you can see a coastal battery that dates from the Napoleonic Wars between Britain and France. This battery was constructed in 1814 as part of a large-scale fortification of the British and Irish coastline to prevent a French invasion. The battery had two large cannons to defend the narrowest part of the Shannon estuary. It was one of six batteries established as part of the large defensive network. However, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo a year later in 1815 made these defences largely redundant. Kilcredon continued to be an important strategic location up into the 20th century. An observation position was established here during World War II to keep watch for any aircraft or shipping that may pose a threat to Ireland's neutrality. Kilcredon Lighthouse kept watch over the water surrounding Kilcredon. It was constructed in 1824 when the lights were powered by whale oil. In 1979, it was converted into an electric automated lighthouse and continued to serve the community until it was finally decommissioned in 2011. In the estuary below the battery, it is possible to spot the wreck of the Okeanus at low tide. This 7,000-tonne Panama steamer ran aground at Kilcredon Point in 1947 in suspicious circumstances. Having delivered 5,000 tonnes of grain to Limerick, it was on the way back in good, clear weather when it ran aground, some say in an attempt to fraudulently claim insurance. At low tide, it is possible to see part of the ship today. Rhinevella Bay during low tide at the beach of Rhinevella Bay, you can walk amongst the stumps of Scots pine trees from a forest that dates to around 6,000 years ago. The remains of the trees were preserved by deposits of peat and estuarine clay that built up over the centuries. Though the endless washing of the tides has eroded away the peat, leaving the tree stumps visible at low tide. The trees are part of what would have been an attractive landscape for Ireland's earliest inhabitants. The mixed zones of woodland, estuary and fertile soil 
would have attracted settlement and activity throughout the prehistoric periods. Evidence for this can be seen with the discovery of Neolithic settlements, tombs and artefacts along this coastline. In later periods, people continued to exploit the rich natural bounty of the estuary by constructing stone salmon weirs in the river. Local folklore tells of a lost village, Kilstifan, that is visible off the coast of Rheinvella every seven years. Kilstifan was said to have been engulfed by waves and drowned. The disaster may be historically documented in the ancient annals of Ireland that recount in 804 AD, there happened great wind, thunder and lightning on the day before the festival of Patrick this year so that 1,010 persons were killed in the territory of Korkovashkin. Today, folklore warns that fairies now inhabit the place, and anyone who glimpses the doomed village will suffer misfortune. Rheinvella is one of the closest points to County Kerry on the other side of the estuary, and from here and other nearby points, there are fine views across the water. The beach here is popular with swimmers and is home to a distinctive natural habitat of shallow soils and salt shingle that is favoured by salt-loving plants. Species such as wild carrot, sea aster, common scurvy grass and cow parsley can be found here. However, winter storms mean that the habitat along the beach is in constant flux. Rheinvella is also a noted fishing spot and according to local knowledge, the best time to fish is at low tide. The most common fish caught include flatfish and dogfish. Graves of the Yellow Men As you approach Kilbaha from the east, you can visit the memorial known as the Grave of the Yellow Men on the shoreline in the townland of Kilclaha. Nine headstones were erected here by the local community in 2010 as a memorial to a group of foreign sailors who are said to have drowned off the coast and were buried at this spot. However, the exact circumstances by which these men died, as well as their nationality and the date this tragedy occurred, remain shrouded in mystery. The most common tale is that the men were French and that their ship got into trouble in Kilbaha Bay. The locals made an attempt to rescue the sailors by casting out a rope, but the rope broke and only some of the men were saved. Local folklore gathered by the Irish Folklore Commission dates this event to sometime in the 1880s. However, the story may have older origins. Thomas Steele wrote an account in 1828 that describes an area near Kilbaha Bay that was believed to be haunted by the ghosts of Portuguese sailors who were murdered. Their spirits were said to glide around the bay at midnight. Some even say that the story dates back even further to the time of the Spanish Armada. The fact that Armada crewmen who came ashore in County Clare were referred to by locals as yellow men may lend some credence to this tale. It may be the case that all of these stories have some grain of truth and they remain a strong part of Kilbaha's oral tradition. The Shannon Estuary has always been a busy shipping lane since the development of Limerick City by the Vikings. Countless vessels have plied their way up and down the river right past Kilbaha Bay. A number of these vessels never returned to port, as there are over a hundred recorded shipwrecks around the Loophead Peninsula, with hundreds of lives lost. The memorial, located at an idyllic spot overlooking the beautiful bay, is an appropriate place to remember all those lost at sea around Loophead. The Pilots' Memorial and Kilbaha. Kilbaha Bay is the westernmost harbour on Loop Head. The pier was constructed here in the early 19th century. 
It served as a berth for ships bringing supplies to the Loophead Lighthouse. Many of the local people around Kabaha made a living by fishing and collecting seaweed, and some became highly skilled boat pilots, who would use their knowledge and skill to lead boats and ships safely through the treacherous waters to avoid the many sandbanks and reefs. The Limerick Harbour Commissioners took responsibility for administering the pilot service along the Shannon, and the pilots of Kabaha and Carrigaholt ensured the safety of vessels on the western part of the estuary. The pilots would venture out in small canoes or boats to steer a safe course in front of the larger ships. However, tragedy struck in May 1873 when a canoe with five local pilots on board capsized in high seas while they were piloting an Austrian brig. All five men were drowned. As a result, the use of canoes was discontinued and a sturdier two-masted sailing catch was purchased in 1875. A memorial to the drowned pilots was erected in Kilbaha and their story is also commemorated in a haunting ballad, sung here by Marty Crotty. Close to the pilot's memorial, you can see the giant anchor of the Morven. This was shipwrecked at Horse Island, west of Kilbaha Bay, in December 1906. The vessel had sailed from Portland, Oregon, with a cargo of almost 3,500 tonnes of wheat. It was attempting to tack against the wind up the estuary when the wind suddenly changed direction and strengthened. As a result, the ship was blown onto the rocks. Thankfully, none of the 24 crew were lost. The captain's wife was on board, and they had been married just nine months previously in San Francisco. On the road up to the lighthouse, you can find a heritage exhibition in the Kilbaha Craft Gallery that tells the remarkable story of Henry Blake, who died in 1975. He was the last native Irish speaker in Loop Head and was also a well-known Shanachie storyteller. Although he was blind, he was a renowned craftsman and a maker of sugon chairs which he skillfully crafted from rope. His skill and dexterity can be seen in a video in the gallery. Loop Head. Loop Head is the most westerly point in County Clare and is a spectacular setting where the land juts into the sea. The waters of the Shannon lie to the south, while to the north, the waves of the Atlantic pound against the cliffs. On a clear day, the mountains of the Dingle Peninsula in Kerry, including Mount Brandon, can be seen to the southwest 
while the rugged coastline of West Clare sweeps to the north and east. With such otherworldly beauty, Loop Head has become the setting for many legends and folktales. The sea stack off the coast is known as Dermot and Gronia's Rock and is said to be one of the places the young couple took refuge whilst they were fleeing Fionnacool. The sea stack is also setting for a story about the legendary warrior Cúchulainn. The story is recounted here by Laura Foley. Loophead is called Loophead because it was originally Leaphead, and that came from the Irish Ceanglame, the head of the leap. And then that came from Cúchulainn's Leap, which was the original name for that point. Because the reason I say the original name is because that name is on that headland since about the 9th to 10th century, which is a really long time to have a kind of folklorish name on an, an area. Most folklore names are 1700s on. Mm. And the story that of why it's called Cuchulain's Leap is Cuchulain was been chased by this hag called Mal. Now, a hag doesn't necessarily mean that she was an ugly woman, just that she was a, of a witch. And the story is that basically Mal, if she ever touched Cuchulain, had the power to make him fall in love with her. And he didn't want to fall in love with Mal. Um, but Mal was supposed to be madly in love with Cuchulain. So she chased him all the way down the west coast of Ireland. But when they got to Lupaid, he was trapped, because you can see that there's a Shannon on one side and the Atlantic on the other, and he had nowhere to go. So he decided to jump, and there's a, the island, which is called Dermot and Gronny's Rock now, and he jumped the island. And then the story is that Mal jumped after him, and then Cullen was very quick-witted, so he jumped straight back, but Mal didn't have the strength to make the return jump, and she died on the rocks. And the story has ties to, like, Hag's Head near the Cliffs of Moher, and also Milltown Mal Bay, because they say the blood of Mal fed into the bay there, and that's why it's called Mal Bay. The undisturbed cliffs here are a haven for a variety of seabirds, including kittiwakes, guillemots and razorbills. It is a great place to observe the passage of migratory birds and to watch the waters for the numerous whales and dolphins. Loophead is home to many rare species of plants, as described by Karma Madigan. The third area where you find your different range of flowers again is on the moors at Ross, at the bridges of Ross, and at, on the moors at Lepet. Here you have the peat-loving plants, small, tufted peat-loving plants like the heathers. Like, and there are a few different types of heathers, and you have some white, cross-leaved, uh, white heat heather as well, ling and purple bell heather. Um, you have the common centauri, you have the sheep's bit, really pretty, delicate, small flowers. They have to be small because they can't survive height with so much wind. <laughs> so they adopt to their environment by growing really small because I've seen common centauri and I've seen eyebrows growing much taller in inland places or, you know, in inland kind of um, peaty places. But on our head, on our really windswept um, moorland, they're really tiny. So they are. Uh, the tiniest flower is probably the bog pimpernel, though. That is really under your foot. You have to look closely to find it, but how interesting it is, you know. So, uh, so yeah, the, the floral footprint of Lupe is actually quite interesting because, as I say, you have three combinations that you can work off. You have, you have the moorland, you have the hedgerows, and you have the uh, shingle flora, which you will find both at Ross, but not as much, and Rhymevella especially. Loop Head was the location for a lookout post and an era sign during World War II. The era sign was one of 85 such signs around the Irish coast. The large letters made of whitewashed stones were visible from the air and let both Allied and German pilots know that they were flying over neutral territory. At the request of the Americans, each sign was numbered and so they served as an aid to navigation. The era sign at Loop Head was restored in recent years. It can be seen close to the tip of the headland. The lookout post was staffed by local people who kept an eye out for suspicious activity. While on duty on October the 16th, 1943, volunteer John Blake noticed a plane flying low overhead. It contained one John Francis O'Reilly 
who parachuted into the nearby townland of Movine from a German Heinkel 111 plane. O'Reilly was a colourful character who became known as the Flighty Boy. A native of Kilkee, he was working on the Channel Islands when the Germans invaded in 1940. He ingratiated himself with German soldiers, learned the language and acted as a translator. In 1941, he went to Germany, where he began broadcasting for the Irish service of German radio under the direction of the Ministry of Propaganda. German military intelligence then decided that he should return to Ireland as a spy to monitor activity and link up with IRA members. O'Reilly was arrested shortly after he landed and was detained in Arbor Hill Prison in Dublin. In July 1944, he escaped and a reward of £500 was offered for his capture. O'Reilly returned to Kilkee, where he was promptly arrested by his own father, a former policeman, who then claimed the reward. The lighthouse on Loop Head is one of 70 around the coast of Ireland. There was a lighthouse here as early as 1670, and in those days the signal consisted of a coal fire contained in a brazier on the roof of a single-storey cottage. Construction of the present lighthouse began in the 1840s, and it became operational on May 1st, 1854. It was designed by George Halpin, who also designed Kilcredon Lighthouse. It stands 23 metres and four storeys high. Changes and improvements were made throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, the lighthouse is fully automated, with the last keeper having been withdrawn in 1991. The lighthouse is open to the public during the summer season. The Church of the Little Ark the story of the Church of the Little Ark was recorded by the famous local storyteller and Shanachie, Henry Blake, in 1955. The story is recounted here by Eilish Connolly. Um, well, the Little, little Ark was um, built uh, due to necessity. The landlords that um, were the, who were the landlords in this area of Loophead were the Keens, Marcus Keane, and he didn't want the Catholics to have a church. So over a long period of time, there were attempts made to build a church, knocking two houses together and putting an altar in, and Marcus Keane would come and knock down the house, evict people who would leave property, and it, it was all quite, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, drama at the time. Anyway, the priest, Father Meehan, came up with an idea that was inspired by the bathing boxes in Kilkee. So he created this ark on wheels, that he would wheel down to no man's land, which is a land between high tide and low tide on the beach here in Kilbaha. And he would say mass. And this really caught on and captured people's hearts and imagination and, and really it fueled the whole situation in another way. And there's, there's pictures that were drawn at the time, uh, depicting, you know, a thousand people kneeling on the beach. Um, while Father Meehan was saying Mass. And today, if you go down to the pier in Kilbaha, you'll see a small bronze um, plaque, uh, a, a picture of Father Meehan there. And also in the church itself here in Kilbaha, uh, you you're welcome to go in any time. And there at the end of the church, there's a little onyx off it, and you can go in and actually see the little ark itself. Bridges of Ross the road north from the church at Monin brings you to the northern coastline of the Loophead Peninsula and the spectacular Bridges of Ross. This is a natural formation known as a sea arch, where the waves have undercut the land to leave a natural bridge-like feature. There were three arches here once upon a time, but two were eroded in the past century and have collapsed into the sea. The cliffs afford an opportunity to view the sedimentary geology of the area, where different layers of rock have been folded and tilted over millions of years, as described by Martin McKeown. On the bridges themselves, again, just cross when you cross over the bridge and you look down, you see that there are places where the seawater, at the appropriate time, rushes in and out of the rocks and it's in through holes and out in this way and that. And that's a type of erosion. But the, the erosion is channeled where 
the rocks are weakest. And the rocks are commonly weakest where they are best fractured, when they're heavily fractured. So if you go on the uh, on the island, as it were, over the bridge and, and walk down that, we have to be very careful walking in that area, um, and you'll see that the rocks are twisted and folded and, and intricately cleaved. You know, they've got all these fractures inside them. So it's, it's, it's quite, quite amazing. This stretch of coast is ideal for bird watching, and it is famed across Europe as one of the best places to view a range of rare migratory birds. Flocks of thousands pass overhead during the late summer and autumn on their way south. Skewers, petrels, shearwaters and auks are amongst the types of birds that can be seen, particularly when the wind is blowing from the northwest. Some of these birds travel tens of thousands of miles annually on their journeys between the high latitudes of the northern and southern hemispheres. It is also a great place to spot whales and dolphins from the cliffs. Keep an eye out for flocks of birds on the water, because where there are birds feeding, there could be dolphins or whales too. A change in wave patterns, a blow, which is a plume of water vapour, or a footprint the circular smooth patch of surface water where a whale or dolphin has dived to a lower depth are other indications of whale and dolphin activity. The stony beach of Ross Bay lies to the west of the cliffs. This sheltered spot is home to a number of species of marine life such as sea anemones. Carmel Madigan describes the habitat of Ross Beach. At the bridges of Ross, uh, there's obviously wonderful wild scenery to be seen. So we take ourselves off to Ross Beach, um, which is adjacent to the bridges of Ross, just down the road. We look at the anemones, um, we find where they are on the shore. Um, we kind of discuss their lifestyle, um, how they live in relation to each other or in relation to the other little creatures, like, for instance... Uh, we talk about the fact that the beetle anemone is ageless, so he can live up to 500 years <laughs> um, if he's undisturbed. Um, and, of course, the limpets on the shore are amazing. Uh, they're highly voluminous uh, at the moment. Um, and depending on where you find the limpets on the shore, um, their shell structure will be eroded if it's right direct, like in the, the direct line of the ocean water coming, bashing at them. But are, if they're off to the left or right-hand side, where the water isn't really, the flow current isn't so strong, they'll actually have all their ribs and their points in place, you know, like, um, so they're less, more sheltered limpets. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be smaller as well. They've less probably access to food than the ones who um, grow uh, or live live on the front of the beach. Yeah, the limpets are quite interesting, and the fact that they were absolutely extinct during the famine, um, it's amazing to see that they have all returned and, uh, it, it, you know, that nobody's actually really cultivating them anymore because when I was growing up, we had um, limpets for our dinner on Friday. The beautiful scenery around the bridges of Ross was featured in David Lean's famous movie Ryan's Daughter, starring Robert Mitchum. The village of Cross lies between the bridges of Ross and Dunlicky Castle. In the village, you can find a ruined medieval church in Kilbalione Graveyard. This may be part of a medieval friary that is referenced in historical documents, though no other remains survive. Dunlicky Castle. The townland of Tullock is on the coast north of the village. There was once a large settlement here in the 19th century. The census of 1841 lists 50 houses and 269 inhabitants who made their living by fishing and farming. They harvested seaweed from a nearby inlet using a steep pathway known as the Strapa Moor. However, within just a few short years of the census, the village of Tullig was utterly devastated by the famine. A sketch from the Illustrated London News in 1849 showed a completely deserted village. Today, no trace remains of this once vibrant settlement. 
Along the coast and approaching Dunlicky Castle Point, you can see Ilonon Feron, meaning the Island of the Dove, to the left, approximately 300 metres offshore. This large sea stack appears rather like a teacup and saucer formation in the sea. It is an important seabird colony, particularly for barnacle geese during the wintertime when flocks of up to 200 can be seen. Though today no visible trace remains of the strong castle that once stood here at Dunlicky Point, it is clear that this was once an important strategic location, as described by archaeologist Deirdre McCarthy. The castle that stood at Dunlicky was a tower house, and this type of castle was built mainly for defensive purposes. There were at least 2,000 tower houses built in Ireland and the tower house at Dunlicky was built sometime before 1574 by, by, by the MacMahon family who were the chieftains in Luped. Their main residence was at Carrigaholt where they built another tower house and which is still standing. There isn't any evidence of the castle of Dunlicky left. Um, in fact, by 1675 it was described as being in ruins and its stone was removed for building elsewhere. The tower house would not have been the most comfortable place to live. It would have been very cold and drafty. But perhaps its main function was its prominence on the landscape, reinforcing the dominance of the MacMahons in the area. The castle at Dunlicky itself was built on the site of a much older promontory fort, of which there are at least nine along the coastline in Loop Head. These forts were all, are often dated to the Iron Age, but they continued to be built up to the 1700s and they consisted of a earther stone rampart across the neck of the headland and were built mainly for defensive purposes. The former site of Dunlicky Castle is a very popular spot for fishing from the cliff face, over a hundred feet in height. The locals fish primarily for mackerel, which are often very plentiful around September, as well as pollock and coalfish off the cliff edge. This is in contrast to the southern shore of the Loophead Peninsula, which offers calmer and sheltered fishing in the mouth of the Shannon. Bishop's Island. The sea stack known as Bishop's Island was once connected to the mainland as a promontory before erosion finally broke down the connection, as described by Martin McKeown. But Bishop's Island probably began life, and it could well have been several hundred years ago, maybe as much as 1,500 years ago, that it was totally connected as a promontory to the mainland, and buildings were on it, which was the, the Bishop's summer residence. Lo and behold, over the years, since, the, you know, uh, presumably the, the bishop was our uh, Senon, St. Senon, but, we, but presumably the uh, erosion has taken place. Now, the, the one thing which is absolutely characteristic of this erosion is that it takes place along a certain type of joint in the rock. If you look at the sheets of rock at Bridges of Ross, the sheets of rock which head down towards the sea, and you see a funny type of squiggle in the rock. We call those tension gashes. And those tension gashes are filled with quartz, and you can see them. They, they, they shine a little brightly, some of them. But they're a weak point. And all of these tension gashes have the same orientation, and it is the same orientation as the sea caves, as the separation between the islands and what's going on. So it's, it's a definite weak point in the coastline of, of this part of County Clare. The remains of an early Christian monastery can still be seen on the island, amongst which you can see the ruins of a dry stone church that was constructed in a similar style to the famous Galerus Oratory on the Dingle Peninsula in County Kerry. It is likely that these church buildings were associated with St. Senon's Monastery on Scattery Island, on the other side of the peninsula. The monastery stands on the site of earlier activity, as a Bronze Age standing stone and a promontory fort are also evident. This illustrates the importance of the promontory in the distant past. 
There is a local legend relating to the name Bishop's Island. In the 19th century, a bishop tried to escape the famine by bringing food to the island. He became trapped on the sea stack and starved to death. The sea stack was subsequently named Ilononaspic Gortic, the island of the hungry bishop. In spite of being cut off from the mainland, there are accounts from the 19th century that Bishop's Island was used for grazing sheep and that the ancient church was modified for use as a sheepfold. It appears that animals would have been hauled up the steep cliffs using ropes, a feat that would have required considerable ingenuity and bravery. Kilkee Cliffs and Pollock Holes One of the best ways to appreciate the scenic coast of Loop Head is to take a walk along the coastal path from Kilkee. Two looped walks start from the car park at the west end of the village. One is five kilometres and the other is eight kilometres. There are a number of beautiful and interesting spots along the route, none more so than the amphitheatre, a natural, bowl-like feature on the cliff edge that has the appearance of a tiered seating arena. A bronze statue of the actor Richard Harris marks the starting point of the walk. He is depicted in an athletic pose with a racket in his hand. Harris was born in Limerick and was a regular visitor to Kilkee from a young age. Racquetball was a popular sport in Kilkee at which Harris excelled. He won the Tivoli Cup in Kilkee for a record four years in a row between 1948 and 1951. The alley walls on the beach where the tournament was played can still be seen. Local sculptor Seamus Connolly was responsible for the fine piece that remembers the actor's association with Kilkee. The Pollock Holes are three natural rock pools that are sheltered from the wild Atlantic Ocean where the water is refreshed twice daily by the ebb and flow of the tides. The pools form a protective and nurturing environment for many species of aquatic life, including the numerous pollock fish that lend their name to the pools. The pollock holes are a popular and safe environment for snorkelers and swimmers of all ages, and are a unique attraction of Loop Head. In contrast to the calm and placid waters of the pollock holes, the seas beyond Kilkee Bay are wild and treacherous. There have been several shipwrecks along the coast here, and the ships are remembered in the names of local features. Intrinsic Bay lies between Kilkee and Bishop's Island, and is named after a ship which sank here in 1836. The Intrinsic was en route from Liverpool to New Orleans when it was blown into the bay by a storm and repeatedly dashed against the rocks. All 14 hands on board were lost. Edmund Point takes its name from the Edmund, a passenger ship bound for New York from Limerick in November 1850. During this dark time, people were still leaving Ireland in droves following the famine. The demand for passage was such that the ship undertook the voyage during winter months. It too was driven towards Kilkee by a storm and split in two against the rocks. Some of the survivors made it to shore by clinging onto a mast which had been cut down by the crew. Though, tragically, 98 of the 216 passengers and crew drowned. Kilkee The name Kilkee derives from the Irish Kilkee, perhaps indicating an ancient church that once stood here in the distant past. A number of monuments can still be found in the area of the town today, like the remains of prehistoric tombs, a holy well dedicated to St. Senan, several ring forts from the early medieval period and a 15th-century castle built by the McSweeney's all indicate the importance of the area in the past. However, until the 19th century, Kilkee remained a small fishing village, until the area became a popular destination for people who travelled here to enjoy the stunning scenery, mild climate and bracing sea air. 
To cater for these travellers, local fishermen began to rent out their cottages to visitors, and advertisements for these so-called salt lodges were placed in Limerick newspapers. A paddler steam service from Limerick began in the 1820s and provided ease of access, while in the 1830s wealthy families from Limerick began to build holiday homes in the area. When the railways were established during the Victorian period, Kilkee and Loop Head became famed as one of Ireland's premier holiday destinations, and the Salt Lodges made way for hotels to meet the growing demand for seasonal accommodation. Many of the town's fine buildings date to this period. At its height, the railway brought over 250,000 passengers each year, and the population of the town doubled and even trebled during the holiday season. It also became celebrated for events like the annual Strand Races, a traditional horse racing meeting that takes place over two days every September. The Strand Races originated in the 19th century, but are still a popular event each year. Many famous visitors became enchanted by Cookie and Loop Head over the years. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the British poet, spent time here in the 1840s. The novelist Charlotte Bronte came here on her honeymoon in 1854 and wrote about the wild, ironbound coast with such an ocean view as I had not yet seen and such battling of waves with rocks as I had never imagined. The Crown Princess of Austria stayed in 1896, while movie director John Ford shot a short film called One Minute's Wait in Kilkee in 1957. In 1961, the revolutionary Che Guevara spent the night in Kilkee after his plane was held up by fog at Shannon Airport on a flight between Cuba and Moscow. This led to a chance meeting with a young artist called Jim Fitzpatrick, who later produced the iconic Viva Shea image of Guevara, which has adorned T-shirts and posters all over the world. One of the chief delights that attracts tourists year after year to Kilkee is the abundance of high-quality cuisine, with the area particularly famed for its fresh seafood, with lobster, crab, crayfish and pollock all caught locally. Cooked periwinkles are a local favourite and much enjoyed by visitors, as described by Carmel Madigan. Periwinkles now would be less uh, popular on, on the shore, certainly with our family. Uh, my mother wasn't had, didn't like the snail-like look of them, so um, we had less periwinkles. But when I take groups of people uh, to the shore nowadays, I find that um, certainly people from Limerick are very interested in, in the periwinkles. Uh, it is really a strong tradition with Limerick people coming to Kilkee to... to um, to eat um, periwinkles, which are provided there on the shoreline uh, by various providers, cooked um, every year. There's at least four providers in Kilkee, and Kilkee's renowned um, because they did a periwinkle study some, some um, oh, it was about back in 2002. Uh, they did a big periwinkle study around the coastline, and they found that Kilkee like, was synonymous with uh, this tradition of uh, having these cooked periwinkles. But as I say, there, there are six different species distributed differently throughout the shore. There are two that very high up well beyond so, you know they, they reach the ocean daily they daily reach the ocean and that's a rough periwinkle lives in little grooves and crevices and then the the edible one lives more or less throughout the shore from really low down to higher up and openly on the rocks when on a sunny day you will find them and uh, they do actually close themselves in um by the little door system uh, like all the gastropods on the shore like the top shells and the the common dog whelk they have a little door system that kind of seals themselves off if it's a really hot day or also it helps to to help them not be predated um, especially by crabs now most crabs can't actually stretch into uh, pull out the the periwinkle but there is one who can the the velvet swimming crab actually has very uh, fine pincer claws so he can actually um, scoop out his um, his periwinkle uh, without even breaking the shell and of course, the broken, the unbroken shell is of high value to the uh, hermit crab, who lives in shells of of uh, periwinkles and top shells and common dog quelks uh, because they have no shell of their own. 
Now, if you see one of these type of shells, like a periwinkle flying across a, a pool, uh, scooting across it, breaking pace, it won't be a periwinkle, it will be a hermit crab. <laughs> they, they actually, um, you know, they move fast and they can live up to 70 years if they're kind of undisturbed. This abundance of seafood attracts more than just human visitors. And it is home to a number of species of seabirds like oyster catchers, dunlins and ringed plovers. The sea cliffs, along with the marine caves and reefs off the coast of Kilkee, were declared as a special area of conservation, helping to protect this rare and important natural environment. Corbally and Cushing. Corbally has a traditional small streetscape, and there are amazing views of the coastline to the north and south from this elevated site. The long, narrow field systems in the locality are distinctive and date from the 19th century. This was when tenant farmers purchased the land from the aristocratic landlords through the Land Commission. There was a lookout post here during World War II to guard the coastline. Cushing is on the shore at Farahi Bay and was the hub of a strong fishing industry in the 19th century. There were 50 Kuruks fishing from here in 1837, while local women were employed gutting and cleaning the fish. Traditionally, each Kuruk was owned by three men, who shared each catch equally between them. Boat building was a highly valued skill, and traditional boat building techniques have been revived in recent years by the local community. The skill of local boat maker John Cully Marinan is described by Christor McCaig. From Killard Point on the edge of Dowkmore Bay, the ground rises steeply to form an almost continuous line of cliff that stretches south to Loop Head. At Cusheen in Farahi Bay, the remains of an improvised slipway on the shore are the only clue to the presence of a once bustling fishery. In 1837, some 50 Kuruks were fishing from the bay, with crews from Dunbeg and Farahi and other places nearby. At the turn of the 20th century, there were just 13 Kuruks, nine of these from Corbally village, a half mile distance and four from Farahi, a little further inland, fishing from the bay. Fish buyers or their agents from Kilkee and Kilrush met the boats in the morning on the shore, where as many as 20 women gutted, cleaned and cured the mackerel on tables erected on the pebbled shore, or the clutter as it's known. Cusheen was heavily dependent on the sea for its income, and women earned money selling edible seaweeds, shellfish, and fish in the local towns. As was the practice elsewhere on this coast, the crew normally shared in the cost of making the canoe or supplying the nets, as Padrigo Brian of Corbally Village explained to the folklore collector Sean McGrath. One might own the canoe and the nets, or maybe the nets were owned by another man, but always three men known as partners fished the one canoe all during the season. Men might change, but there was never jealousy between fishermen and the most of us fished with the same men until they died off and someone else took their place. The fish were divided evenly between the men. For over 70 years until his death in 1957, John Cully Marnan made and repaired canoes outside his home in the village of Cusheen. In his own words, I have been making canoes for the past 75 or 76 years. That's since 1878. And in all, I've made 123 canoes, and I think I must have repaired another 100. In his latter years, many of the currics he made were grant-aided by BIM. He was a skilled joiner and cooper, and he was for many years the only full-time currick maker in West Clare, attracting commissions from as far away as Inishir, which was itself a centre of currick making. At the time of his death, there were just three or four currics fishing occasionally from Cusheen and perhaps the same number from Dunbeg. Conclusion 
We hope you enjoyed your trip around the Loophead Peninsula and that this guide helped you along the way. We wish to thank everyone who contributed to this guide, including Active Me Heritage, who recorded the interview segments. This guide was produced by Abarta Heritage in conjunction with Loophead Tourism. For further information on the Loophead area, visit www.loophead.ie. Loophead Tourism is committed to the responsible development of tourism, particularly focused on environmental integrity, social justice and local economic benefit. We trust that you share this vision and that you will take care of the beautiful environment of Loophead on your visit.